You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Good evening, everyone. Uh, A couple house cleaning items uh, for you. First, uh, one correction from last week. Um, I do not have a handlebar mustache. It is a Fu Manchu. I uh, was notified of that afterwards, and I received the correction. See, I can take a correction. See? Proof. Uh, another thing, just so you know, I, if it looks like I'm not very well kept, uh, maybe that is the case, but I got all this black on me from, from painting my truck. Yes, painting my truck. And didn't realize how hard it is to get off. So I'm not trying to make a statement on any level. Um, uh, I do wash my hands, especially during COVID. Uh, It's just difficult to get off. So anywho, uh, just get those two things out of the way. Well, as you know, we're in our sermon series, United in Christ. And and we're in chapter 2. And we're going to see this theme in chapter 2. And it's going to go like this. This is who you were. But God, this is who you were, but God, all the way through chapter 2. And today, we're going to see that there was a point, if you're a Christian, when you, are, when you were not united in Christ. Of course, the theme and the message of Ephesians is you are united in Christ if you are a Christian, but there was a point when you were not united in Christ, regardless of how old you are, how old you were when you got saved. Could have been four, could have been 14, could have been 40. There was still a point when you were not united in Christ. And the sobering truth is that not being united in Christ is a path of destruction. It's a little bit what we're going to see today. It's a path of destruction no matter what a person's life looks like on the outside. Could look perfect. Could have all the bells and whistles, drive the nice car, live in a nice house, in the cool neighborhood. Unless you are united to Christ, you're on a path of destruction. So I'm going to pray because I need God's help. And let's listen and hear and receive what God has from us in these three verses. Heavenly Father, I submit to you my own need for the power of the Spirit um, to preach well for your glory. And I pray for my friends who are in front of me that by the same Spirit, because we're united in Christ, that you would be at work and help them to see what you have already spoken in your word and help us all to apply to our hearts and to our lives what we read here. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. My dad, um, an artist, can do amazing work with paint and a canvas. Uh, Last time I was visiting, I heard him explain to my daughter that he took a painting from 20 years ago and painted over it. So 20 years ago, he painted a landscape with watercolors. That was 20 years ago. And then he took that same painting recently and created a portrait with oil paints. The difference between the two cannot be more stark. Uh, The transformation is undeniable. One would think you would start with a blank canvas, right, and then paint on that. But no, he took something that was already created. (laughs) It's been hanging out in his basement for 20 years. He took it and, and painted something completely different. What God can do to the soul is even more stark and undeniable. 
But here's the deal. If the life of a person before becoming a Christian could be depicted by a painting, you know what it would look like? It would be black. One black canvas. There's no other way to paint the words rebellion, sin, and wrath. (laughs) If there is another way, I'd be happy to see it. But rebellion, sin, and wrath, that is what your life looked like. Just black. But then God comes along and does something wonderful with your life. He makes a new painting. And your painting is now depicted by the words mercy and grace and love. And not because you had anything to do with the new painting, but because of what God had done for you. Like, it's so clear that when someone gets saved, something transformative has taken place. I know friends who, who get saved, and they, and they perhaps, you know, be on drugs and robbing and all that kind of stuff. They get saved, and all their friends are like, who are you? And that is the right question because it is like, who are you? You were just, just robbing the come and go down the street. And now you're at the food pantry helping people out in the streets. Only the power of the gospel can make that kind of radical and transformative change in the life of a person. I hope it has become clear to you that the reason we took our time going through Ephesians 1 is that it tells us so much about God. You're, sp- you're not supposed to walk away after reading Ephesians 1 and think of yourself. Yes, what God has done for the redeemed is the focus of, say, Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 14. But what God has done for the redeemed is meant to bring God glory. We see what God has done for the redeemed and the redeemed point back and declare It was all God. Even in the second half of Ephesians 1, Paul's prayer for his brothers and sisters at the church of Ephesus is wholly Christ-centered. So when I say Ephesians 1 is all about God, it is about what God has done for you, Christian. Now as you flip the page from Ephesians 1 to Ephesians chapter 2, the focus slightly shifts. Verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians 2 is in your Bible to prod you a little bit, to prod you to remember who you once were so that you can rightly understand who you are today. And what you once were is not good. If you're anything like me, what you once were is horrible. Everything about Sean Powers before being met by God's grace, is gross. It's the black painting. Sin, rebellion, evil, wickedness, all that and more. And one of Paul's aims, one of his goals in verses 1 to 3, is for you to see what you once were compared to what you are today in Christ. See that? Chapter 1 is the setup for what we have. We will take a look at what is being said in these verses generally, and then we'll get more personal. 
The problem, generally speaking, the problem of humanity is sin. The problem for humanity is sin. The particulars of sin, the details, run deep and wide. The result of sin is a dead heart that has no chance to live apart from God's gracious intervention. What we read in Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3 is the state of the unredeemed, the unregenerate. I've created bookends from our passage by taking verse 1 and the latter part of verse 3 to help you see the problem for the unredeemed, the problem that you once were a part of. It's this, and you were dead in your trespasses, yet you were dead. You had no life in you, none, zero, zip. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now bump down to verse 3, and were by nature children of wrath. Feel that. Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's what you were. And if you're not a Christian, that's what you are a child of wrath. I mean, Paul's, he's really swinging for the fences on this one. To be a child of wrath is quite an alarming statement, and rightfully so. So there's a lot here. First, as we see, your, your heart was dead. You've heard me say, a dead heart cannot make itself alive. A dead heart needs outside intervention to become alive. Also notice the contrast being made here with Ephesians 1.5. You might remember we took a lot of time to talk about how in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ. When a person is in Christ, he or she is loved, adopted, and a child of God. If a person is not in Christ, he or she remains that child of wrath. Now, why is it that you are born dead and born as a child of wrath? For that answer, we have to go back to the garden. And I feel like in Ephesians, we've been going back to the garden a lot, and rightfully so. When you talk about the gospel, you want to talk about what the gospel is, you've got to go back there. We're going to do it again. We know from the story from Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned against God by disobeying the one commandment. <laughs> one commandment. And what did God command? Adam and Eve were not to eat from one particular tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I've heard it explained recently, um, and I disagree wholeheartedly, that the real culprit in Genesis 3 is not Adam and Eve, but the serpent, the devil. It is the devil who lied to Eve. He tricked them into eating the fruit. Therefore, Adam and Eve are not guilty of their sin. All the blame is simply being pushed on to Satan. Adam and Eve are just victims. It was kind of a nonsense argument, in my opinion. Because the problem is, it doesn't square with Scripture or reality. The second half of Genesis 3 tells us about the consequences of sin for Satan, for Adam, for Eve. So when we read in verse 3 that you, Christian, were by nature a child of wrath, Paul is saying that you were born into this world following the same destructive path as Adam and Eve. Right out of the womb. You're on that path. Path of destruction. You were born with the same sinful nature. In, in Christian theology, we just simply call this total depravity. And the fact is this, everyone born into this world 
is an object of God's wrath because of sins and trespasses. You might remember we saw the word trespass in Ephesians 1.7. Because of the redeeming blood of Jesus, you have been forgiven of your trespasses. What can be indicated here is that if the blood of Jesus does not redeem you, you are not forgiven of your trespasses and you stand guilty before God. I have pointed out in that particular sermon on that particular verse, um, you're probably more familiar with the word sin than you are with the word trespass. The two terms can be used synonymously, but there is a difference. The Greek word for sin indicates your inability to reach a mark or to obtain a goal. You can't do it. For example, you can't reach the righteous standard of living required of you under the law of God. Without the righteousness of Christ, you are unable to be righteous, period. You need Jesus because you can't do it yourself. God has a holy and just standard and you can't reach it no matter how hard you try. Think of it this way. Adam and Eve were asked to, command, to obey one command. One. That's it. We have a hard time obeying 10, no less 300 or 613 that are in the Old Testament. The standard's too great. Your sins are too many. That's the word sin. The word for trespass is slightly different. When you trespass against God, you make a conscience and willful act against God's holiness and righteousness. It's willful. It's, it's not just that you can't live up to God's standard, but you actively rebel against God's standards. You do not live up to God's righteous standard because you don't want to. You're like, nah, I'll pass. This is more fun over here. You're acting in willful rebellion. So, all of this leads me back to what I've already said. Because of sin, a person is dead apart from the gracious intervention of God's mercy and grace. Without God's mercy and grace, the problem of sin abounds and deadness is a spiritual state of the unredeemed. That is the problem. The problem is sin. Now, what are the particulars or the details of the problem? We gotta know that. In verses two and three, Paul lays out three different yet interconnected particulars of the problem of sin. Paul isn't just saying you are a sinner. He is saying you are a sinner and here's why you are a sinner. This is, this is why you are unredeemed. If you are a Christian, I'm about to point out the bondage you were once a part of. If you are not a Christian, then you are about to see who and what it is you follow, whether you realize it or not. Here are three reasons, um, or there are three ways sin manifests itself in an unredeemed individual. And by the way, because remaining sin does exist for a Christian, we do have help from the Holy Spirit in fighting remaining sin until Jesus comes back. Okay, here are the particulars of the problem. I've listed them out for you. Here they are. Children of wrath are following the world. Children of wrath are following the prince of the power in the air. Children of wrath following the desires of the flesh and mind. Let's take these one at a time. First, what does it mean to follow the world in this context? According to Paul. In the first century, following the course of the world meant following the moral or ethical values of the world. We have that in the 21st century as well. 
And of course, what a person believes about ethics and morality connects with how a person thinks and lives in their everyday life. In Colossians, Paul says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, in Colossians 2.8, that there is a difference between the philosophy, traditions, and spirit of the world from a philosophy, tradition, and spirit of Christ. A contrast is being made here. We can, comp- we can compound what Paul says in Ephesians 2 with Colossians 2 and receive a good understanding of the divide that exists between the redeemed and what Paul is pointing out, the world. The point is obvious. There is a difference between the thinking and the values of the world and the thinkings and the values of Christians. Here's an excellent example of how a person thinks impacts their values or how their values or ethics impacts how they think. In the first century, as in the 21st century, Christians stood apart from the culture. At least they should stand apart on the issue of abortion. Now, abortion is one of several ethical issues to pick from, but this keeps, keeps people's attention and hopefully helps me make my point. And I'm not here to give a pro-life sermon. I'm simply trying to show the implications of Christian principles and worldly principles. So in the first century, the Christian rejection of abortion differed fundamentally from that of their pagan neighbors because they carried the personhood of the unborn child always in view. So before a child is born, that's a person. It was not not uncommon within Greco-Roman culture to undervalue the unborn and the newly born because of utility. The question on the table in pagan culture is, is the child useful? Now, broadly speaking, that's very nuanced in the first century, but there was an acceptance. Does, does this child provide any usefulness to me? Now, that's the highest value. And Christians were like, no, that's not the highest value. So when someone was saved, they were taught the Bible, and the Bible makes ethical claims counter to the world. So, for example, if a newly redeemed person were to hear this from the book of Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. <laughs> this is God talking about in 2 Jeremiah. Before, before I knew you, I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. If this is true, you see how minds and hearts began to conform to the principles that God deeply cares about. Before Jeremiah was ever born, God attributed personhood to him. When you take on the heart and mind of God, in this example, personhood is the ethical principle of the unborn, and a child is not simply a utility. The church over 2,000 years ago was onto something well before pro-life organizations came on the scene in the 20th century and before the issue became politicized. They were reading God's word. And they were saying, ah, God says something about this particular issue. We go, we go to different ethical issues, certainly, and make the same point. But God says something about this. And as a church, we stand out from the world by holding to what God says. Here's another ethical shift that can occur when a person shifts from following the course of the world to following Christ. Christ tells us, our Lord Jesus tells us, 
to love our enemies. <laughs> we read his challenging words in places like Matthew 5, these challenging words to love well in Matthew 5. And what is helpful about that passage, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, so at the tail end of Matthew 5, what's helpful from that particular passage is that Jesus draws a contrast between how the world thinks about love and how Christians are called to love. Jesus points out, Christians and pagans both love their friends. Non-Christians love their friends. Christians love their friends. Ha, but you know what the difference is when you were saved? Jesus says, I'll go love your enemy. A Christian is to love the person that they perceive to be their enemy. Now, what a monumental heart shift must take place when a person goes from being a child of wrath to a child of a loving father who has called us Christians to love our enemies. People don't naturally do that. You slap me, I'm going to slap you back. No, not with Christians. We love our enemies. That's a hard one. You do a little heart search right now, you know that to be hard. I know I do. When a person is saved, new categories, new values, and new principles form in the mind and take root in the heart. And as a result, new actions, you live differently. And yes, many times there is a stark difference between the principles of the world and the principles laid out for us by God in his word. Christians must be cautious not to be swept up by the tidal wave that comes from the world. Ah, this is trending. Let's go. No. God saved you from the world. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go back living under that value system, moral system, or ethical system. The second category laid out, another one of the particulars of the problem, it's laid out in Ephesians 2.2. Before a person was redeemed, they were following the prince of the power of the air. Now this might seem confusing, so let's figure out what God is saying. The unregenerate walk according to the values of the present age. That's what I got done talking about. That was point one. But they are also under the control of the leader who rules over this evil world. What this means is that not only do you see a contrast between values and principles in the world and between the church, but there's a spiritual battle taking place between God and Satan. And Satan has control over all unregenerate people, even if a person does not realize the control Satan is exerting. When I opened up this sermon series on what it means to be united in Christ, I mentioned that a theme that continuously pops up throughout the entire book of Ephesians is the cosmic battle taking place between good and evil. I know I've said this before, I'll say it again. At the Powers house, I do this all the time, drives my kids nuts for watching a particular movie or a show and, they're, and the, the, the battle between good and evil is really obvious. I, I pause and I say, let's talk this through. Because there's some application here in what God's word says. There's a cosmic battle between good and evil. 
Every, everything you see going on in the world is a result of a greater war taking place between the forces of Satan and the forces of God. Later in Ephesians, we'll dig into this passage. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. So what he's saying is, I don't wrestle against the physical. There's something else going on you need to be aware of. Against the, uh, the rulers, the authorities, against the, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What so many Christians miss as they go about life is how the spiritual, the spiritual war impacts the temporal. Perhaps when a person is first saved, the spiritual effects on the physical is apparent, right? I think it was for me. But in my experience, as Christians live longer, an awareness of what is going on spiritually wanes. The spiritual light bulb begins to dim. And the spiritual battle can be missed and even becomes foreign for some Christians. We're so consumed with what's tangible. And we forget what's going on in the spiritual realm. Here's an emphatic point Paul makes about the activity of Satan and his minions. It says, There are many following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now, now at work as you sit in this room and listen to me preach. They are now at work in the sons of disobedience. What is, what is certain is that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus redeemed children of wrath for God's glory. But the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is not the end of the story. There is still a spiritual battle taking place. Assuredly, it'll be a battle that'll one day be completely won by God. But until that day, we need to be very aware of the spiritual battle. And what else do we read in verse 2? The unregenerate, the unredeemed, as described as disobedient sons because they did not believe in what God had provided for them. Go ahead and read Romans 1, and you will see that God has revealed himself to all creation. However, many have rejected him. Being a son of disobedience is more than an absence of trust. It is a direct defiance against God. It's like, nope, I'm good. Yeah, I know you made, you know, the Grand Canyon and, you know, the Rockies. And, you know, I know there are some geological things going on. But that was, I know you did that, but no, I don't care. I'm walking that way. So, the thinking and principles of the unregenerate are under the control of Satan. Along with the systems of the world that are contrary to God. And as we see in verse 3, the unregenerate enjoy it. They enjoy it. In verse 3, Paul says, the children of wrath live according to what? The passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Now we really see how the spiritual battle influences and can hold sway over a person's life. The words we grab on uh, onto in this particular verse are the nouns passions and desires. What do these words mean? 
You know, it's popular to hear some people say they're passionate about something they love. I am passionate about reading and studying theology. You might be passionate about a particular hobby. (laughs) That has nothing to do with what passion means here. Our notion of passion, the way we use it in contemporary culture, is not adequate for understanding the passions of the flesh. A better way to translate this verse is to say, children of wrath have an uncontrollable lust uncontrollable lust that pours forth from their flesh. When the word lust is used, your mind probably rightly wanders to sexual lust. When that happens, you're beginning to understand what is being communicated in verse 3. There are powers of evil at work that entice you to carry out ungodly lusts contrary to Christ. What about the noun desire? The Greek word for desire is also will, as in you have a will to do something. And I think the word desire works really well here. It conveys an attitude of the mind and the heart. Now, let's be clear. While I believe lust is a sin, I think having a desire can be good. For example, I have a desire or will to make my wife happy. I have a desire or will to preach faithful sermons. I have a desire or will to to care and protect for my, my children. These are all good examples of godly desires, right? However, there are ungodly desires as well. You know this. The desire of one person to randomly punch another person is not a godly desire. Not cool. Don't do it. And you, you, you can categorize a list in your head of that's an ungodly desire. That's an ungodly desire. You can make that list because you read God's word. We see prohibitions all over scripture. So the problem isn't that we have desires. It's not the problem per se. It is that our desires are often misplaced. What is the root of your desire is the question on the table. When you desire something, what is underneath that desire? Well, we know that the unregenerate have a desire that flows from the flesh and mind. That's what we read in this particular verse. Now, you all have flesh and a mind, so what's the big deal? Let's go back to point two. What informs your desires? God or the forces of evil? The Bible or a TikTok video you saw the other day. What informs your desires? Here's a helpful tip that informs this passage in your Bible, re- Bible reading, especially when you are reading the New Testament. When it comes to explaining the good and evil desires of a person, two reference are often contrasted, the flesh and the spirit. Here's Romans 8.5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. If a person is living according to the flesh, then fleshly desires will result If a person is living according to the Spirit, then there will be a set of desires that have its foundation with God. So the question for you all is, when you have a desire, is the desire coming from your flesh or from the Spirit? The answer for a child of wrath is easy. This is what what Sean Powers was. A child of wrath can only respond to the flesh. But for the Christian, an un For the Christian, a forgiven child of God, you are called to militate against the desires of the flesh and pursue a life according to the Spirit. 
Why does Paul highlight the particulars of the problem of sin and being a child of wrath? Why does he highlight all this? What's the point? What's he trying to get after? What's he trying to tell you? What's he trying to tell me? A couple things. First, Christians do not live in a utopia. Evil exists. Persecution for, for Christians is a reality. Christians must do a better job of dialing in to the more significant spiritual battle that informs the physical issues in the world. Second, we are reminded in this passage that there is an entirely different value system between the world and God. So badly, Christians are beginning to acquiesce toward the world as if the solutions are there. No. Begin with God, then work outwards. Between what the culture is doling out and what we read in God's word, we see a stark contrast. If you're not aware of the values and the principles upheld by God, then you will naturally adopt what you read in the news, what you read in your social media outlets. You'll pick up that book, that best-selling book from the New York Times, and you'll be like, oh, that's, that sounds great. And the reality is, we understand the world around us through this. Begin here, and then work outwards in understanding the various value systems and ethical systems or moral systems that exist in the world. Here's a third reason why Paul highlights the particulars of the problem of sin. If you want to know who you are in Christ, you need to know who you were when not a part of Christ. When you see the evil you once operated under, you can grasp the profound grace, mercy, and love extended to you through Christ. It's great to live in the reality of the good news, but you got to understand the bad news before the good news really grips you. I wonder if you noticed this. I didn't notice this the first several times I, I read this passage, in particular, you know, verses 1 to 3. Did you notice that while talking about the various manifestations of evil and sin, Paul makes a point to say that you are no longer operating under the power of sin and Satan. Take a look at the highlighted bold from this passage. You were dead in your trespasses. Past tense. You were dead in your trespasses, Christian. You were dead in which you once walked. In which you once lived. Without directly saying it here, he's going to say it in a couple more verses, but without directly saying it here, Paul is talking about the power of the gospel to redeem and rescue sinners from evil, from the evil one. You were dead, but you are no longer dead, but alive. You once were walking according to the world, but now you walk the path that God has laid out in front of you. You once lived according to your passions and desires, but no longer. No. God has obliterated the lust that controlled your life through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You once lived according to your desires and flesh, but now, right now, your desires are being conformed and changed 
to live according to the Spirit. What all this means is what we have seen over and over again. Your union with Christ resulted in a complete transformation. Again, whether you got saved when you were 4, 14, or 40, it was a complete transformation. Have you ever, um, I only watch this when I'm at my parents' house because we don't have cable, but have you ever watched a home makeover show? You know, they really, for me, it's like, it wasn't a bit, I didn't like watching it until you bought a house and you're like, oh wait, <laughs> there's a lot of really good ideas in that show. So maybe you've seen it. Um, one, one of the popular ones that I've I learned of over the years is Fixer Upper. I'm sure some of you have seen it. I've seen a few episodes. If you don't know the premise, it is a show where the show's hosts enter a house that looks like it could have been condemned or at least it's just a hot mess or a dumpster fire. The hosts go into the house and they get to work. The kitchen and the, uh, the backsplash of the kitchen changes. The extra bedroom receives new paint and perhaps a wood floor, new wood floor. The basement walls are entirely knocked down to create a brand new um, room, basically. The transformation is literally like 100%. And when the owners walk back into the home, they see a completely new home. They're like, whoa, this is not the right house. <laughs> is that the right address? 100% makeover. When a child of wrath is redeemed, regardless of age, life experience, family background, etc., when a child of wrath is saved, an entire makeover takes place, 100% transformation. God moves in and takes over every space of your life. Perspectives on the world might change. Desires change. How a person understands themselves changes. How a person understands other people changes. Ethics change. Principles can change. What is going on is God, when a person is redeemed, undergoes the massive makeover and it's 100%. He didn't, he didn't save you and said, I'm going to do 95% and I'm going to leave you with that 1% for your own desires of the flesh. That is not what God does. Entire makeover. And thank God, it's 100%. So, what have we seen as I close? The problem of humanity is sin. It's not a popular word to say these days. We like to substitute out for other things like hardship, my struggle. All those could be true, right words to use in the right context. But the problem is sin. S-I-N. Sin. The particulars of sin run deep and wide. The result of sin is a dead heart that has no chance to live apart from God unless God graciously intervenes. Uh, these clues of hope and change in verses 1 to 3 lead to two important words, which are technically three words in the Greek. The beginning of verse 4 is ha de theas, two words in the English, but God, but God. I will speak in more detail next week about these words and what follows, but here are some takeaways. The words but God indicate there was nothing you could have done to go from being a child of wrath to a child of God. Only God can regenerate a cold, dead heart. The words, but God, tell us that God cut off the bondage that you were living under, under the power of the devil. You now live in the power of the Holy Spirit. The words, but God, help us understand that the power of the gospel is greater than any other power in this age or any age to come. 
If but God is a part of your testimony, then your position before God is radically changed. All the spiritual blessings that we read about in Ephesians 1 are yours in Christ. It's just lavished upon you through God's grace. You can't help but like get hit by it. The makeover has taken place. And here is the deal. You can now enjoy what God has done for you. And now you are free to glorify his excellent name. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.